Well, we're coming to a time now we're going to look at a passage from God's Word. And we're going to talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 809. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read our passage this morning. Apostle Paul writes this. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who commits he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Literally in the Greek, it's not to touch a woman. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One man has this gift, another has that. This is God's word. You may be seated. Ah, here we go. Let me uh, pray for us, ask God's blessing on this time and His Word, and then we'll, we'll dig into this. Spirit of God, we uh, just ask Your continued presence with us here as Your gathered people, as we come now to Your Word, which we believe is a living Word. This is not some ancient document written centuries ago, but it is a living Word inspired by Your Spirit, and we trust that that same Spirit who is here present with us, who is indwelling us, would speak to us now what it is you want us to learn and what you want us to understand. Uh, you said very clearly, when you send out your word, it doesn't uh, return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us this morning as, he, as we need it? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. When it comes to relationships in general, and the marriage relationship in particular, one of the most fundamental skills that needs to constantly be developed and then redeveloped over and over and over again is communication. Communication, uh, uh, which if you've done any study of this or simply learned the hard way through failure after failure, you'll know is equally as much about listening 
as it is about what it is that you're speaking, right? It requires both of them in order to communicate well. Which is why, however seemingly elementary, however eye-roll-inducing it may be to hear it, uh, uh, every relational counselor that I've ever seen or, or read stresses the importance of making regular use of some version of the phrase, so what you're saying is blank, whatever. To, to, it's the, the feedback phase of active listening where it is you seek to understand, make sure you've understood correctly what you've heard. And, and, and the reason is because listening requires an intentionality that hearing alone does not, right? And, and just because you've understood the words that somebody says does not at all for a second mean that you've understood. So this is a communication skill, it seems, that either hadn't been developed yet or the Corinthian church were just really, really bad at, uh, had they, they needed to develop when it came to understanding uh, what it is that, that Paul had been preaching. Because whether it was his use of the term gift, whether it was his teaching about freedom in Christ, clearly somebody should have raised their hand in one of those meetings and said, so what you're saying is to Paul. Somebody should have, somebody should have said that to him because what's clear here, if they had, there's all kinds of places that Paul would have responded with, whoa, what? No, 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 no. No, uh, what I mean, like he would have had an opportunity to expand. And I trust, uh, as we read through this passage, where they're mis- what, what you see is that where they're misunderstanding and where their resulting misuse of Paul's teaching had veered far, far off course from God's intended design, here in particular had to do with sex and its use in marriage, which in case I have not been clear enough already, is also what I want to talk about with you this morning as we continue in our teaching series, Procurum, a Latin word meaning to be curved outwards. Now, if you haven't been with us up to now, let me just quickly catch you up. The premise of this whole series is that the reason behind all the relational struggles, all the relational brokenness in the world that we see today between everyone from spouses, children and their parents, entire nations, is not simply because of environmental situations, um, psychological pathologies, uh, uh, historic injustices alone, but according to God's word, it's because of the selfish, inward curved nature of every one of our hearts. What Augustine and Luther described as incurvatus in se, to be curved inward on oneself. That is the natural state of everyone, every human heart, and it resulted at the fall when sin entered into the world. But what I also have been seeking to show you over the course of these weeks is that along with the sending of Jesus himself, God uses all kinds of different relational tools in order to help reshape our inward curved nature outward once again, outward uh, towards one another as well as towards himself. That, that's, that's God's design to return us back to how he originally designed us. And what I want to show you from our passage here in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 as I said, is the way God also designed sex as practiced within the covenant safety of marriage between a man and a woman as a tool to both curve us outward towards one another as well as to point us towards an even deeper level of relational intimacy and connectedness than we could even fathom, one that can only be filled by God himself. But I need to just pause and just acknowledge a difficult reality. <laughs> in, in preaching about a subject 
like sexuality, like sex. I just need to acknowledge that that in itself is just this massive, multifaceted, emotionally interwoven, and really, let me be honest with you, pastorally precarious subject to preach on. Uh, I'm coming in here a little bit of fear and trembling uh, as I do this. And what that means, first of all, is because, it's, because that's what it is, there's no possible way that I'm going to be able to deal with every possible question and scenario that could ever come up surrounding sexuality in a single message. Nor do I intend to. Okay? Uh, what Paul is addressing here is God's good design in our sexuality as well as how he designed sex to be used within marriage. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I won't be able to deal with every other situation. But secondly, here's what it also means. It means that although I'm going to do everything I can in my power to be pastorally sensitive, to be appropriate in how I teach this passage, my great fear is that I could also still offend some of you. I don't want to do that, but my fear is that I could still do that. And one reason for that, as Gary Thomas notes in his excellent book, Sacred Marriage, is that the sad reality is that most of us were introduced to sex in shameful ways. Think about that. Most of us were introduced to sex in shameful ways, either through discovering pornography at a young age, maybe uh, you experienced the injustice of sexual abuse in your life. We've, we've encountered sex in shameful ways, and so that shame we carry with us into a discussion like this, and now shame has this incredible power to affect even our ability to hear things and engage with them in a certain way. It causes us to hear them differently. So that's, that's one reason that I feel like I'm in danger of offending some of you. For others, I know some could see even talking about sex in church as offensive. I, I know, I get it. And, and I want to just say that those are both very real, those are valid perspectives that I want to honor this morning. And so what I want to ask from you simply is this. I have something to ask you. If I say something this morning that offends you, that is hurtful to you, that digs up something that, that I just step on toes this morning, what I want to ask is that rather than holding on to that hurt, rather than even sharing that hurt with others, would you bring that to me? I just want to invite you to do that this morning. Whether that's you want to talk with me after, you want to send me an email, a text message, whatever it is, Come and, and bring that to me so that I can address it, so that I can respond to it and, and repent in any way necessary. Uh, that's, that's my commitment to you. In fact, if you're a member of this church, that's something you've already committed to doing. So I'm just asking, would you do what you've committed to doing and, and bringing those things to me if that happens? My commitment to you remains, as Paul said in the book of Acts, to preach the, the whole counsel of God to you, to not shrink back from it, even from difficult subjects like this, and to show how God's word continues to have bearing on every single aspect of our lives, even to this day. And something that when you consider the theological errors of the Corinthian church in this case were to see sex as either nothing more than an appetite to be fed or a degrading, shameful act simply to be endured for procreation, I think you'd be hard-pressed to demonstrate how those two misunderstandings of God's design in sex aren't two of the primary ways we still misunderstand it today. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be gathering from a number of the messages that we've already preached in this series this morning, but married or single this morning, what I'm praying we all come away with from our time in this passage in particular is the very goodness 
of God's design in sex as an act of complete self-giving, as well as the, the, the power of sex, the curve-reshaping power, when used in the place as well as in the way that God intended. So, in order to help us all get there, I want to look at this passage in just two ways. I want to show you sex as a holy union, and then sex as holy service. Sex as a holy union, sex as holy service. So if you close your Bibles, open them again with me. Let's wade into this together. Follow along with me, beginning there, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12. And follow along as we look now at sexuality and the other. Okay, so let's talk first of all about sex as a holy union. Sex as a holy union. Now, I mentioned when we began that uh, these abuses of sex in the Corinthian church, and, and which we undoubtedly still see demonstrated in our culture today, could have very likely been built out of a misunderstanding of Paul's own teaching. And if you look back at verse 12 and then the beginning of verse 13 in chapter 6, you'll see why a number of commentators agree with that conclusion. First thing to notice is those quotation marks. The quotation marks you see around that repeated phrase, everything is permissible, verse 12, and then food for the stomach, stomach for the food, in the beginning of verse 13. But while this does indicate Paul is likely quoting popularly used slogans within the Corinthian church, in order to refute them, think about Paul as one of the most avid proponents of salvation apart from obedience to the law, as well as declaring all foods clean, just along with Peter and Jesus himself did, it's entirely plausible that the Corinthians are first quoting previous teachings from Paul. Now, yes, they've taken those teachings to two wrong extremes. On the one end, libertarian excess, which is what we see here in chapter 6, and then uh, ascetic abhorrence, which is what we're going to see down in chapter 7 and much of which was undoubtedly influenced altogether by Greek philosophy of the day, this Platonic dualism which saw physical matter, including our human bodies, as kind of a lower, discardable part of our human nature, and then the spirit as the higher, uh, eternal part of us, our, our true self. But again, if you follow much of Paul's teachings on the, the freedom we have now in Christ, it's entirely possible to see that both of those extremes originated with just a misunderstanding of his teaching. But as I said when we began, apparently nobody took the time, raise up their hand in any of those meetings and say, so what you're saying is, no, nobody did that. Uh, uh, but again, and I know this because of the years that my wife and I had to spend in marriage counseling ourselves, sometimes when you don't yet know how to communicate, you just don't have the skills to do it yet, sometimes a counselor, what they'll do is they'll walk you through a bit of what communication looks like so that you can see how your communication, the way you're doing it now, is leading you to communication breakdown and to, to misunderstanding each other. So that's, I think, exactly what Paul is doing here. He, he's taking that quote. He's saying, okay, yeah, everything is permissible. Right, yeah, that, that is what I said. Yes, uh, um, the law is now not necessary to follow in order to have freedom in Christ. Yes, but think about it. Just follow that through, guys. Think about it. Follow it through that doesn't mean everything is now good for you. Everything is permissible. Yes, that doesn't mean I'm going to allow myself to be mastered by things now. Follow the teaching through. Let's, I'm going to show you how this works together. It's almost exactly like uh, the freedom 
that, that we have as kids, if you can remember this, where we wanted to have the freedom to, to buy and eat all the junk food that we kept putting in the shopping cart. When mom took us shopping, we were like, man, when I grow up, I'm going to buy this stuff myself and you won't be able to put it back. It only, if you followed through on that, it usually takes one night of like eating a family-sized box of Fruit Loops and then dipping Doritos in those little tubs of icing to know that just because you can do everything now as an adult doesn't mean you should. Um, you've probably discovered that. Or then he goes on, okay, yes, yes, all foods are clean in Christ. Yes, but both the hunger for food as well as the food that satisfies your hunger are not eternal things. They are a present reality that is passing away, as Paul teaches later on in chapter 7. But when you read Paul's next point in the second half of verse 13, look there. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. It sounds initially like that's totally, he's jumped into a whole other subject. You're like, I thought we were talking about food, what? Until you come to understand that all of these misapplied quotes have actually been referring the whole time is not to an appetite for food at all, but to sex. This is euphemistic language for sex, and that's how they're applying it. Namely, sex outside of God's design bounds of marriage, which is what that term sexual immorality in the Greek porneia means. All sex outside of God's covenant design of marriage referred to as porneia, sexual immorality. So just follow their logic now. Follow the way that they're understanding this. We, we are now free in Christ from the demands of the law in order to be justified before God, which they included now the marital laws of fidelity. We're free in Christ now. So really what they had was an over-realized gospel understanding, what sometimes is referred to by theologians as antinomianism. We're free to do whatever we want now. So... That's, that's, a, that's a part of their understanding. But then on the other side, they're saying, okay, if the body is this lower, weaker part of a human experience, the one way we're going to discard in death, that's what they were taught in Greek philosophy, then just as we satisfy the lower desires of hunger, whenever and with whatever we want, we should satisfy the lower desires of sex whenever and with whomever we want. That's kind of how they were putting those things together. Sex, they would say, is just a physical appetite that doesn't actually involve the sacred soul. It's just a physical appetite that we can feed whenever we want. The logic is actually quite sound. It makes sense, actually. Uh, and as I said, you've likely heard this and maybe are still influenced by this same logic today. You see it everywhere. It actually makes a lot of sense until you read verse 14. Look with me there. Paul says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also, which means what? It means contrary to Greek understanding of the day, our physical bodies are not merely a, a husk which contains our true eternal selves. No, just as communication requires speaking and listening, God's good creation of the human person includes both body and spirit together as one single inextricably linked thing. It's all together. And both will carry on into eternity. Which is something I think we get wrong today, however inadvertently, even in Christian funerals. When referring to a coffin or to an, an urn of ashes, we say, so-and-so isn't here anymore. They're in the presence of Jesus. Which is true, in part. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, but 
what Jesus' resurrection shows us, as well as much of the New Testament teaching on resurrection shows us, our bodies are not discardable shells, but an equally valued part of God's creation that he will resurrect and glorify one day. Our body is just as much a part of who we are as our spirit. It's not a discardable lower form of God's creation. So in one sentence, Paul dismantles Greek philosophy here on Platonic dualism, division of body and spirit. Next, he dismantles the I'm free to do whatever I want in Jesus understanding in verses 19 and 20. Look there. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's just think about that altogether. That in itself is just a staggering a staggering claim to, to make and try to wrap our minds around. The idea that in dying on our behalf, Jesus redeemed us from slavery to sin and death. And in the same way that God dwelt by his spirit behind the curtain in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, he now dwells in you. He now dwells in me and all who look to Jesus by faith. He dwells in us like that. Can you, can you get your mind around that? I can't. I can't even imagine how that works. And yet he says, that's what's true. For all who put their faith in Jesus. But don't you see, this is then why Paul can call us members of Christ's body at the beginning of verse 15. For we both belong to him and we're also indwelt by his spirit. But, and this is, so, this is key now, this is also why Paul then can immediately go on in the second half of verse 15 to say, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So he, so he responds, yeah, how you'd expect someone transformed by the Spirit of God to respond. No, never, that, that should never happen. But how does that work? How could someone be uniting a part of Christ's body to a prostitute just by fulfilling a base human instinct for sex, which they and we see as nothing greater than eating a sandwich when you're hungry? How am I uniting members of Christ to a prostitute? Well, Paul anticipates that question. And he responds in verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, quote again, the two will become one flesh. Now, does that sound at all familiar to you? It should if you've been here for any part of this series, because in almost every message, we've, we've talked about how Paul again and again is quoting from Genesis 2.24. In the very first marriage in history, we read, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here it comes again. Now let's begin to just draw all these pieces together now and see if we can understand what Paul is presenting here. First of all, the body is not a discardable part of our human experience, but an eternal, inextricably linked part of our humanity as a whole, body and spirit. It's one thing. Secondly, our bodies are not our own to do whatever we want with. They don't belong to us anymore. They've been purchased. They were bought at a price, and that price was the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He dwells in us now by his spirit, so we are living temples. Next, the, the sexual act then is not a base appetite, a, a physical act alone, but a giving of our whole selves body and spirit to another person. That is, what we do with our bodies matters. 
It includes the spirit. It's not just a physical act. That's what it means to become one flesh with someone. Finally, by referencing the pre-fall marriage template as the sole context in which God designed this one flesh self-giving to take place, by default, Paul excludes all forms of porneia, all forms of sex outside of marriage as a legitimate God-honoring pursuit for a believer in Jesus. That's what he means by presenting that template. This is the place God intended for it to be used and none other. This is why for anybody really, but for a Christian in particular, there is no such thing as casual sex. It doesn't exist. For you were created body and spirit. Therefore, not only if you're a Christian, are you uniting a part of Christ's body to another person in a sexual act? We all All of us are uniting our whole self to another person through sexual union. It transcends the mere joining of physical parts. It's an inclusion of both, and it's an inclusion of both whether you see it that way or not. We don't determine this reality simply by our belief. God says it's true whether we believe it or not. We offer both body and spirit in our sexual giving. As Keller writes, we live in a society in which it's considered normal to give your body without giving yourself, to to give your body, to have sex, and to hold on to your independence. But then he goes on, but Paul says sex was designed as a way to do radical self-donation. I love that. Which is why, far from being prudish or repressive, the Bible forbids sex before and outside of the covenant safety of marriage because For someone to ask you to give all of yourselves to one another without also being willing to commit every other part of themselves to you, which is what the covenant safety of marriage was designed to offer, is both demeaning to your personal offering and also, as we're seeing here in the passage, it's spiritually damaging to you as well. Our inward curved nature wants to use sex for selfish reasons, just to fill an appetite. But, when we use our bodies, which are not our own, and which are now living temples in the way they were designed for, our one flesh union with another person becomes a holy, God-honoring union that brings glory to God, and which curves us outward toward another in whole self-giving. It really just demonstrates the beauty and the power of God's design in sex. It's both. Okay, so that's sex as a holy union. The last thing I want to look at together with you quickly is sex as holy service. Sex as holy service. And we'll look at this more quickly, not at all because it's less important, but because we've, just, we've already laid lots of the groundwork now, so we can just begin to move. Now, th- there's actually a whole lot of other places of sexual brokenness demonstrated in 1 Corinthians. It's a messed up book. We'll look at it sometime. Uh, Just know right now, there's all kinds of other sexual brokenness going on in this church. But if you look at chapter 7 now, beginning at verse 1 and 2, you'll see Paul acknowledges again some of the advantages that he sees in his gift of singleness and celibacy in the midst of all this uh, God-dishonoring, self-dishonoring behavior, while at the same time reinforcing this ethic of sex as being a gift that is designed to be used only within a covenant marriage relationship. But as we mentioned a few weeks ago in discussing Paul's description of singleness and celibacy as a gift, so again here it's important we remind ourselves, whenever Paul talks about a gift from God, and he lists 
both celibacy as well as sex, as such in verse 7 of chapter 7. A gift, in Paul's description, is always something that God gives to be used in service of others. Paul's idea of a gift is never something that you just have and use for yourself. It's always designed to be used in service of others, which is something I think we already saw played out in the previous point as to the libertarian excess and, and honoring the gift of sex as something more profound than simply meeting a physical appetite. But now, in the following verses, Paul needs to address another misapplication of his teaching, also born out of Greek philosophy of the day, for those who have gone to the opposite extreme, namely asceticism. These were people, without getting lost in the weeds here, in a Christian context anyways, who had an under-realized gospel understanding that led them to see radical abstinence, rigorous self-denial as a means of achieving a higher plane of righteousness. Jesus is good, yeah, but if we want to be truly holy, we really need to restrict ourselves even more. That's how I go up the ladder in holiness. So what they were saying was, okay, if our sexual appetite is this base, lower thing and leading to all kinds of pranaya in the church, maybe sex in itself is wrong. Maybe sex in itself is an unholy, soul-robbing act that should be avoided altogether, even within the context of marriage. That's what this group was saying. The problem for that is, of course, this is also to miss out on the good, curve-reshaping of God designed for sex. It's just in a different way. As Gary Thomas writes again, Ironically, the idolatry of sex and obsessive guilt over sex accomplish the same thing. They keep the focus on self, whether it be out of enjoyment or despair. But again, God designed sex not to be used for selfish purposes, but to be an, a radical act of whole self-giving within marriage. And so Paul addresses this ascetic group in verses 4 and 5. Look with me there. He says, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so, you will, so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, very simply, the point here is because God designed sex as this radical act of self-giving within the context of the marriage relationship, we should continue to give it. That's really the point he's, he's making here. In fact, to deny this giving of yourself, which we now know is much more than just a physical act, aside from mutual consent and only for a time, is to once again use sex in a selfish, self-serving way. Now, I don't know how many of you ever read this passage before, but absolutely, undoubtedly, this passage of Scripture, particularly in chapter 7, has been used and, and abused countless times, primarily by men, to coerce and guilt their wives into sexual submission. And, and I want to just denounce that uh, as wicked and wrong and, and a, an abuse of Scripture, as I pray all of us would. That, that's not at all what's being intended here. This is not a tool to coerce someone. But just because the passage has been used wrongly, it doesn't erase the truth of what it was intended to communicate. A few things to note. First of all, in our modern 21st century Western context, we don't see anything actually all that surprising about Paul's instructions as it relates to both partners being addressed equally. Your body doesn't belong to you alone. 
Your body doesn't belong to you. We're kind of like, yeah, that's how it works. It's supposed to be equal. But in Paul's day, where women were seen primarily, uh, wives were seen primarily as the property of their husbands and, you, and, and primarily necessary for producing heirs, this would have been outrageous for people to read. For a husband to be told that he has any kind of duty to his wife, that his body also belonged to her, it would have been an outrageous claim in, in this first century context reading. Yet, this was to be their new gospel-formed reality. A, a, a leveling of the, the playing field and the exaltation of women who in this culture had been subjugated to so many, such a large degree. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a leveling and an equalizing that takes place within the power of the gospel. That's what it does. And incidentally, it's also a clear corrective to a husband who would want to twist this scripture to meet his own selfish ends. Secondly, now that Paul has helped Corinthians and us to decide to, to understand God's design in sex and the implication of one, self, one, one flesh whole self-giving, we can also see that using a passage like this to force service from another person uh, is to ignore that God's design in sex is that we are to offer it. It's whole self-giving. So how would we use something that's meant to be whole self-giving in order to require or force someone else to serve? It doesn't make sense. It's the acts of sexual union within marriage is to be a holy, God-honoring service to the other person as opposed to serving yourself. So it doesn't work, actually, to use this to coerce someone. Finally, obedience to Paul's instruction here will ultimately see sex used as God designed it. Namely, to be a curve-reshaping tool in the life of an individual as they seek to serve their partner in this way as opposed to themselves. And, as sex was also designed, it helps to maintain that one flesh unity with your spouse over the years. I want to anticipate some of your questions, and, and, and this is, none of this is for a second to ignore the, the complex, oftentimes painful realities that exist within a marriage as it relates to sex and suggest you should just get over them, just overcome them and be obedient to Scripture. Uh, uh, that, that's not at all what I'm trying to do here. Um, in fact, it's, it's the fact that um, there's all kinds of different circumstances that play into it. Uh, everything from past sexual abuse, um, broken trust because of infidelity, even a stage of life that can absolutely have a huge bearing on sexual health as well as uh, frequency of sexual activity for a married couple. And, and to ignore that and to just say, hey, just get over that, that would be more of an act of, I'd say, self-betrayal than self-giving. These are real things that we need to work through and address. But I think Paul's point there in verse 5 in particular about only depriving one another by mutual consent and for a time is much more, cons it's much more significant than we often consider. Because do you know what that would have to imply? In order to do something by mutual consent, what would you have to do? You'd have to talk to each other. <laughs> You'd have to communicate with each other so that you could do something by mutual consent. You see what I'm saying? It's a crazy idea, I know. And, and I know that also even just the act of talking about it can also be difficult. It can be awkward, particularly if there's brokenness and shame attached to the reason for depriving one another. But to talk together, to have the conversation 
honestly, vulnerably with one another, maybe even bring in the, the, the help of a trusted biblical counselor so that you both have understanding of what each, where each other are at, man, that could save you, prevent years of hurt, years of misunderstanding and marital failure. And think about it, to have that conversation, to just share your heart openly and vulnerably with another person is also an intimate and uniting act of self-giving. That is an act of self-giving to say, this is where I'm at right now. This is where I'm struggling. This is what I need. And to serve each other that way. It's also an act of self-giving. As we close this morning, I think we'd be missing a massive hopeful piece from this text, as well as the Bible as a whole, if we looked only at how sex curves us outwards and back towards one another and didn't also look at how it curves us backward towards God. Which I get is an incredibly weird, strange thing to even talk about. Uh, each time it's come up, we've struggled with it, I know. Try to get our minds around. But again, as we already looked at in Ephesians 5, when Paul quotes that same passage in Genesis 2.24 about leaving our father and mother, being united unto our spouse and becoming one flesh, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Tell me if you get that, because I don't. Um, it means, at least though, as wonderful, as beautifully uniting a gift as sex within marriage is, it too is a part of this present world that's passing away. A shadow that is pointing us to a far deeper, more profound reality. And where you see that in our passage is in verse 17, back in chapter 6. Look with me there. Paul says, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And he uses, just so you know, he uses the exact same verb for unite here in verse 17 that he does in verse 16 for uniting with a prostitute. So, sorry, what? Uh, I, I don't, what are we supposed to take from that? That, that? that Christians somehow have sexual union with Jesus? No, no, that's not what it's saying at all. What it shows us is that the depth of intimacy, the naked and unashamed knowing, the radical self-giving, even the rapturous pleasure experienced by a married couple in their sexual union is actually nothing more than a taste. It's nothing more than a hint of the closeness that God desires to have with you through Jesus. It's an amazing signpost, but it's a signpost pointing us to a far deeper close, intimate reality that God desires to have with you through Jesus. Jesus, our faithful bridegroom who gave all of himself in order to cover your shameful nakedness, to cleanse his bride, the church, by his spirit, who dwells in us now by faith, an, an unfathomable level of intimacy, and who draws us daily into deeper knowing, whole self-giving to others, as well as back to himself. May we somehow, by his grace and by his help, both understand and experience this profound truth in our own lives. Amen. One of the ways I was uh, first introduced to one of my favorite pastors uh, was from a message he preached years ago at a Gospel Coalition thing where he told a story 
about a, a friend, a single mom that he had brought out to a youth event one night, and the pastor was talking about sex, and he was already worried. And the pastor's illustration in order to teach these young people about sexuality was to take a rose, to hold it up and say, isn't this a beautiful rose? I want you all to, to pass it around, get, get, get to smell it, feel the, the, the leaves, feel the sharpness of the thorns. I want you all to pass it around. And he passes it around. And at the end of the time, as he's done speaking, he says, hand me back that rose. And as they bring it up to the stage, it's completely, it's falling apart, wilted. It's been like handled by so many people. And his big application point was, now who would want this? That was his big crescendo. And, of course, this pastor describes the, the anger within him, righteous anger that someone would so misuse God's word to preach about sexuality. And his simple application point for his, from that was, Jesus does. Jesus wants that rose. And what we're celebrating here in this supper is the demonstration of that. That whatever your past, whatever your sexual brokenness that we all bring to a gathering like this today, there's no one who's untouched by that. The cost was paid in full. You were bought with a price. And the price didn't consider your sin. It covered it. It covered the shame. Made us clean for all time. We can stand completely free and righteous before a holy God now, not because of our deserving, but because of his earning on our behalf. That's what this table shows us. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, as he sat around a table of people who were going to betray him, deny him, abandon him, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it, all of you. Paul says, as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim that price paid in full until he comes again. And we are united with him, body and spirit, for all time. That's the hope of the gospel, particularly as we think of a message like this that touches on such a sensitive place of sexual brokenness. This table is for all who have put their faith in Jesus. If you know Jesus, you are welcomed to eat this. It's not about your deserving. It's about Jesus' willingness to offer himself and pay the price for you.